0: Welcome to the Prosperous Piano Teacher Podcast. I'm Ashley Young, pianist, instructor, and business coach, and I'm here to help you dream big about what your studio could be if you are willing to open your mind and level up your business skills. I'm going to share the tangible strategies that I've learned for streamlining and scaling your studio so that you can align your business to work for your life instead of letting your business control your life. I am so happy that you're here. Let's dive in. Hello, hello, welcome to another episode of the Prosperous Piano Teacher Podcast. For those of you that are new around here, I'm Ashley Young and I'm so excited to be joined today by the very first guest of the podcast. I have Amy Webster here um, from Motif Music Studios. How are you doing today, Amy? I am doing great and it's such
1: an honor to be here.
0: I cannot uh, wait to dig into more of your story. I, For those of you, those of you listening, I was talking to Amy we were just here in the studio chatting up before we started recording. And it seems like we know each other because we've talked for a a pretty extended period of time. Um, We met online through our YouTube channels and through creating content and things like that, but we actually haven't met in person or in face-to-face until now. And so this is really exciting for us.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it totally is, and it's- Yeah, go ahead, Amy. Oh, I was just saying it totally is, and it feels like we're old friends.
0: Exactly. Yes. So Amy, can you just start out by telling us how you got started teaching? What is your musical story? How did you come around to music? How did you get involved teaching um, and all of that?
1: What a fun question and one that really brings up all this like fond feelings of the great mentorship I've had in my life. So my journey was a little less traditional, I think, because I was actually a teenager studying with a really vibrant music educator in our community. She taught music for young children and she taught lots of private students and I was one of them and I think one day she decided she needed a holiday and I to a foreign destination. And she said, Amy, I think you could do it. Would you consider looking after my home and teaching my, I think, 85 students while I'm away? And 85 (laughs) students?
0: Oh my gosh. So it's not like you you put your toes in. It's like you got thrown in the pool.
1: (laughs) Yes, this is a full immersion and also looking after this beautiful log home and animals. And I started off teaching the group piano classes, which also included parents. So what a deep dive into music education as still a voter grade seven, eight RCM student. I really felt underqualified, but I had so much enthusiasm. She was organized and I had lesson plans and I just dove in and it was marvelous. And so I think that was just this beginner start to teaching which grew from there wow and what was it like for you to
0: be thrown in to be teaching those classes with the parents and also so many students did it did you feel overwhelmed at the time or were you excited or both or
1: yeah there was like loads of like oh my goodness what am i doing right and I think one thing that was fabulous is I felt from the very beginning that people were cheering me on. Not only were the parents really welcoming, and like, oh my goodness, here's this like young, vibrant. 16, 17 year old, that's really excited about music and really caring and kind, but also that my teacher had the faith. I mean, she was truly desperate for a holiday. So let's just say I was kind of the best option at that point. But I think that it really early on showed me that people want to be behind you as a teacher. Finding great mentors is so essential. And so that was definitely a really special part of my journey. And it also made me want to grow and I think that's part of my story is that I started into teaching young from there I took music for young children training and I continued my RCM studies but it really showed me how much I wanted to still grow as a teacher and make sure I was passing on amazing information and just improving my own skills that's
0: so great oh I love I love it when teachers say that because I'm such a believer of like as a as an instructor best instructors are always learning, right? It's never a finished product. You're always learning and you're always inputting things into your brain that you can pass along to your teachers or to your students, excuse me, and vice versa, right? It's like this flow back and forth. You learn, you pass it along, and then your your students also teach you things. Um, What about, I'm curious when, so when you took over these 85 students and your teacher went on holiday, did you get any sense of like the business side of things, or was it just really you were focusing on the lessons and that was it, or did you get a glimpse into that world?
1: Well, that was like such a short time. That was like three weeks to a month, but I will say that that teacher in particular, and I had some other great mentors after that, she really did have a good sense of teaching as a business and really setting up great clear policies, For families, they knew what to expect. She really regarded herself as a professional. And even though she did a deep dive into like way more work and preparation than anyone could humanly do, and I know she'd speak to the exhaustion of that kind of level of Mm -hmm. energy. But I think she did model really good um, principles and policies that really helped me when I was pondering, like, okay, if I'm gonna do this what am I gonna do when I have my own studio and my own students? And so that brought me back into like just setting things up right from the start, although I have loads of stories surrounding that too.
0: Sure, we all
1: do, right?
0: (laughs) Okay, I can't wait to dig into those. So then, so you did that and then you said you you continued your training and at what point was it that you started taking on your own students to teach?
1: So about a year later, I think I was 18 when I finished my music for young children training and that same teacher passed on some graduates to me and I started out as a travel teacher and I think a lot of us have done that gig. So there mm-hmm. I was in my Volkswagen Rabbit, like, you know, chucking down this, the road to go to my <laughs> students. And fortunately, again, this is like great Um, reminder of how much impact a teacher that sets up good policies and practices can mean to the community of music teachers because the transfer students I got knew what it was like to exist within a really Um, respectful biome of music families. And so I benefited from that right away. So even though I was traveling to homes, I had like some structure, I had like, what would happen if I didn't show up? What would happen if they didn't show up? We had some great policies in place uh, from the beginning. So that was super helpful as well.
0: Yes. And I'm so glad you brought that up because that's one thing that I talk about a lot is that, you know, if you're, if you're a piano teacher and you are raising your rates every year, it's actually really good for the industry as a whole. It's good for every piano teacher because it sets a precedent and it, and it ensures that like the industry is being elevated every year as opposed to kind of what, well, you had a similar experience. of Like you had these teachers that had these great policies and that created a really healthy business for you starting out as a teacher when you were getting these transfer students. I think we've also all had the experience on the opposite end of the spectrum of getting transfer students. And it's like, what is happening here (laughs) or what's going on? You know, people have the best of intentions, but I think sometimes it can be a different situation. So I'm so glad to hear that you had that positive experience of like, it was clear that these students came from teachers that had good policies in place. And you, you didn't have to deal with a lot of that because it can cause a lot of headache. I, I also started out, well, not started out, but at part of my journey, I was teaching and going to people's houses and it, it, provide some unique (laughs) things that you need to put in your studio policy. Um, And I would always say, you know, now, especially with online, I would not necessarily recommend traveling to people's houses as the first option. Um, But if you have to do it, of course, having good policies in place is the way to go for sure.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think it, it definitely is a unique way to start. But You can grow from there. And yet it's a really niche. So some people might actually love that. And I know other teachers who've gone back to travel teaching because there is something really uniquely special about being in someone's space, if that suits your personality and if you can pace things well enough. So I will say it might be a bit of a detour, but I think it's valid that one side of starting early as a music educator and still doing my training. And even though I was really committed to like pursuing furthering my own credentials, it did get that little bit of imposter syndrome in me early. Mm. And I think that's something relatable for probably your audience here today. Yes, I think everyone. So can you if you're willing to
0: dig deeper into that? How how what does that look like when it came up in the past or if it still comes up and what do you do with it? Because I know everybody has their own tips and tricks or their own ways of dealing with it. And I I would love to know more about how it affects you and and how you you manage it.
1: Yeah, I think one of the early things was just I always felt like behind like I was by then I was 1920. I was doing like grade nine piano and I really wanted that ARCT here in Canada um, with the conservatory. But I always felt like, oh, well, I could play for people, but I'm like really not where I want to be yet, you know? And I think that's something we can all find. And now I warn people about it because I found that no matter how far you advance, no matter how your skills are growing and blossoming as a musician, you're almost likely always going to face that because you get out in this big world and people you admire are doing these amazing things and you think, oh, wow, I still have more to learn. And so I think early in my career, it was really crippling. I felt you know, anxious about it. I thought, oh, man, I don't want to perform or I don't want to do things that feel like it's going to reveal where I'm at in my music journey, although I was musical Mm -hmm. and hardworking. So in retrospect, it was silly. Um, But those were how I felt. Whereas now I'm really starting to embrace the fact that we are growing, and that's a beautiful thing in our industry. And if we can keep improving our skills as educators and as musicians, that's where the real um, sweet spot is as musicians. It keeps us fresh. It keeps us learning and relatable to students as well. So even though now I want like to have that really strong base for pedagogy when you're working with students and creating good habits from the start, I also say we're, we're always learning and growing. So, yeah,
0: I love that. I think it's, it's Brene Brown. I think that says comparison is the thief of joy. Mm -hmm. I think that it's such a true statement. And one of the things that I hear often in the entrepreneurial space is like, you can never compare your starting line with someone else's mid journey or end journey. Right. So if you're looking at someone that has been at it for 10 more years than you or has been doing it for whatever, whatever more they have than you, you can't really compare yourself because it's not a fair comparison. Um, And then the other way that I like to flip that, too, is to also say, like, if someone else is doing it and they're 10 years ahead and they're having this mass amount of success with it, that means it's possible. Right. So instead of comparing, we can kind of use that as motivation or as like, oh, that they've already illuminated the path a little bit. (laughs) So, you know, I can kind of follow along in that path or my own path, but in their general direction. And I can get there, too. And I think those can be helpful reframes Um, in addition to like what you said, remembering, you know, we're always along this journey and adding the word yet can be so powerful. Mm -hmm. Right. Like I don't have blank, 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 blank yet. I have not blank, 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 blank yet.
1: <laughs> I love that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I love that we can transfer that hopefulness to students as well. And I know part of your role in nurturing um, adult music students as well as younger students, but you're such an encouragement in that journey and saying like, those are things that you can continue to nurture. So I think as piano teachers here with this audience, that's such inspiration to stay learning and to communicate to students too to enjoy the places where you're at as well and not always be thinking when I get there I'll feel confident or when I do this I'll have arrived because you may find that that goalpost still keeps moving away and that can be positive but it can also be limiting in some cases yes yeah
0: so limiting and I don't know if you have, have ever thought this way but one of the things that I try to do is like dig deep of like, why do I want to get to that point? What does that mean? Like, how am I going to feel when I get to that point? What is it going to mean for me? And is there anything from preventing me from feeling that way now, (laughs) you know, before I reach that external goal or before I reach that goalpost? Like what is preventing me from kind of embodying what I feel like I would suddenly magically have if I reach that goal right now and helping, you know, have that help me get there. And I think that can be really helpful too.
1: Yeah, that's a beautiful point. And I think people listening in will be like, hang on to that. I think that's, yeah, such a beautiful way of thinking of things like what, how is it going to transform things for me if I adopt that mindset now? Yeah, exactly. So you now, I know you're, you are not, well,
0: correct me if I'm wrong, but I know you're not traveling to people's homes to teach anymore. Mm-hmm. So tell me a little bit now, like fast, us fast forward us to what your business looks like now. And well, let's start there. What, what does your business look like now?
1: Okay yeah the fast forward is that I traveled um, for a little while and then I had different studios popping up in my own homes. I was still a student and single so I was like dubbed kind of like an itinerant or gypsy music teacher because I would always find a new little spot to teach. So fast forward to 2010 my husband and I were relaxed. We went to Costa Rica for a few weeks and when we were there, we thought, you know what, we would love to create a culture and a community around music education. So we came back energized, and we're not quite as energetic now, um, and ready to start (laughs) something new. And one of the biggest honours was when we suggested this idea of kind of a hub for music education in our smaller community on Vancouver Island. Uh, Our my own teacher then i had transferred to a couple teachers so my teacher cindy taylor who took me through to my A.R.C.T. and piano pedagogy she was like yes this is amazing and i will work for you if you find me a grand piano so she, she did just that she traveled from campbell river i'd been traveling about um 45 minutes for my lesson one way and she decided to do the drive down to our community And she worked for us for a decade at our location. Super honored. Yeah, that is so special. Yeah, it was pretty special. And then we had 12 educators join us at its biggest was 12 educators, but we always range between seven and 12 teachers. And we were at that location for 10 years, uh, just pre-COVID okay and so and so you had an
0: actual physical location with seven to 12 teachers in there teaching lessons how many how many families or how many students did you have coming to the space
1: yeah it would be interesting to know the numbers of like the whole time we were there and we've now been a business there for 13 years but i think we had around 220 total and a really vibrant early childhood music program in our last year at that location and so, yeah, really special things in a community. And I must say, the credit goes to a really beautiful team of music educators that gain trust for each other. And I think that's why I love what you're doing, too, is encouraging each other in our teaching and it's a very vulnerable spot to be in to work in a community school because again that like comparison thief of joy thing can sneak in because people are rubbing shoulders with these amazing teachers that they're like oh my goodness like your students sound amazing or maybe they love your playing so it was a really good culture for learning and growing and staying flexible so I have so much credit to our team And then of course, my husband is an absolute rock and looks after all those tiny details that I would be so lost with.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's great. So it sounds like you two make a great team. And what was it like? Because I imagine obviously like not every, I have not had a physical location. So that brings up its own um, unique set of circumstances to be dealt with. And then also to be managing that many other teachers and doing, you know, I know you had a team of people, but like there's the administrative work and then also the business policies and all of that. So what would you say, first of all, like what was your role in that? Where did you feel like you were, where was your superpower?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, there are so many roles and I will get to this later is the fact that if anything, I took on too many roles in a really Mm -hmm. vulnerable season. I had my three babies in the midst of it and a type of hemorrhagic stroke. That's a whole other topic. Mm -hmm. But in that season, I really would say my role was nurture of both the team of teachers. So I did all the program management, all the scheduling, all the emails. And nurturing family. So, nurture is a big word for me. I think that I love celebrating people. I love taking care of people. Um, and so, that has been part of my role there. So, I would say, like, we didn't have anyone else in the inbox until year 10. So, I did all the admin in that part. Wow. Jeff did all the financial stuff and all the bookkeeping and payroll and a lot of the marketing media stuff. So, yeah, it was a big, big decade. <laughs>
0: Yeah. And throughout that what what would you say if you could distill it because I'm sure that probably I'm like you could probably write like a book or many books on the lessons learned from that experience. But if you had to distill it down to maybe three main things or like when you think over that whole period of time, what are three things that stand out to you as like that was a lesson I learned, that was a lesson I learned, and that was a lesson I learned.
1: Oh, that's a really amazing question and hard to distill, but I would say One lesson is people want to be heard. So I think Mm -hmm. in the context of management of both staff and students, always hearing somebody's like question behind the question or question behind the reaction was something that made that role really wonderful for me, even though it can be challenging because you're always problem solving. But hearing the the real questions like if you get a frazzled response from someone that sounds like a confrontation I'd often just pause for a second and go oh it's a hectic week or oh they're tired Mm -hmm. and try to respond in a way that's like grace-filled and still holds up you know policies still holds up those things but pausing to hear the real issue behind Things is one of the most powerful things, I think, in nurturing a team. So that was one lesson for sure. Um, I love that.
0: I love that a lot. I think that's, if we can, if you don't mind if I take a little more space on that, because I think that's so important. And that's a thing that I see people getting very caught up on. You know, when you're expanding a business, it's so easy, especially in the online space, and you'll see this a lot, that for people to kind of come off as like, they're just, they just want to like, you know, quote unquote, grow an audience. I just want to get more students. I just need more people in my business, but it's human beings, right? On the the other end of the screen or on the other end of whatever the interaction is, it's always human beings dealing with other human beings. And I think people do forget that. And that ability to hold boundaries, like you're saying of like having the policies in place to protect the business side, one, I think gives you more capacity to be understanding and nurturing, but then also, you know, treating people like human beings and really going that extra mile to hear people and to be able to filter through maybe the way the information is presenting itself can be so powerful and can really make or break in any kind of conversation that you're having. Because I think whether it's a teacher that you're managing or whether it's a family that maybe is having an issue with scheduling or billing or something like that, we always have a choice when someone comes at us to either escalate, like to meet them where they are and escalate it, or to meet them where they are and de-escalate it, Mm -hmm. right? And if you can meet some, and kind of that's, that's, correct me if I'm wrong, but that kind of seems like what you're saying. You always have that chance to meet someone where they are, get beyond how the information is presenting itself maybe get to the root, extend some compassion, and really actually hear people. I just think that's so beautiful. So thank you for saying that. That's such a wonderful lesson, and I think it applies in so many areas.
1: Yeah, yeah, thank you. I think that, too, it was a good reminder that as teachers, we already possess that skill. And sometimes we don't transfer it into the business side of teaching But I think if you're problem solving for your students, you're advocating for them, you're figuring out, oh, how how do I improve this aspect of playing? Or how do I give them confidence to perform if they're anxious? All those things are skills that teachers possess in loads of abundance. And so I think when we're doing business practices, we can get frazzled and forget that. But you're absolutely right. And that's been a like a life-giving way of doing business. So it's not always the easy way and it's not how a lot of big companies would run a staff, but I think it's been the best way for me to run because it's very authentic to who I am. And so that's been a huge lesson for us in the midst. And it's also brought along people who are colleagues and friends and who've been with us for so many years because we really value them and value what they offer to their students.
0: Yeah, definitely, for sure. And I I love what you just said there too about that's the way that's authentic to you. That's so powerful and it's so easy to get lost. And I know I myself have gotten lost in the past of like, well, this is what is, you know, what the quote unquote norm is. So this is how I have to do it. Or this is how so-and-so is doing it, kind of that comparison thing again. So that's how I should do it. But really... I think the sustainable way to run a business is Mm -hmm. to be checking in with yourself of what is authentic to me, what makes sense for me so that my business can kind of work for me instead of me feeling like I'm chasing after this business or hustling for this business. I think that's so much more sustainable. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think the second thing I would cite, which is fun because it's part of your title of your podcast, like the prosperous piano teacher and It actually does have to do with money. And one of the weaknesses for Jeff and I is that between us, we have, you know, a varied skill. We didn't think we could do all the things we could when we started Motif, but we found out we can manage a team. We can do, he can do accounting. He's a computer programmer by trade. So we have all these skills. And one thing that we forgot is when you're doing all the things in-house, you forget to set pricing to reflect that so that if you ever have to hire people to do your job, you actually have the budget to do it. So as piano teachers, we can often get caught in an hourly rate model in our head and think, okay, well, if we're charging 60 an hour, 75 an hour, that just seems so big. But when we started to realize what comes out of that billable hour. It was a huge reframe, especially when we started looking at like, can we afford to hire somebody else to relieve that pressure and scale? And even though we were leading pricing in our area, I would say we came up short on that when we were like, whoa, we've got some like great skills here, but we're getting tired. And you really need to set those ideas from the beginning that teachers, even if they're solo entrepreneurs, they're thinking, Am I paying myself for my admin time? Am I paying myself for my marketing time, my social media time, my prep time? And they actually need to figure out how many seats they're actually filling in their business in order to make sure they're charging enough that if they scale, they can actually hire people to do those things. So that would be the second lesson I learned.
0: I love that. That's so, yes, it's such a good point. And it is... It's so easy, especially when you start out to think like, oh, you know, $60 an hour, whatever the number is, $100 an hour. That's a great rate. But one of the questions that I will often ask people when they, when I first start doing coaching with them is, okay, how many hours are you teaching and what is your rate and how many hours a week do you spend doing other stuff that supports the business in addition to teaching? And if you're charging $60 an hour and you're teaching, let's say you're teaching 30 hours, but you're also... Doing thirty hours of admin or ten hours of admin, you're not making sixty dollars an hour. And in some and sometimes I've seen it where teachers are literally doing as much work in hours as they are teaching. So it's like if someone is teaching for twenty hours and doing twenty hours of admin, they're they're making half of their hourly rate actually when you calculate it out. And so I love that advice to make sure that you're charging an hourly rate, or maybe moving beyond charging an hourly rate and charging a monthly. F- you know, a monthly set amount or something like that, so that it's more sustainable. You can eventually scale and pay someone to do that. And that, it brings up a really big issue, which is if your business isn't healthy with you, you know, as a solopreneur, as, as the one person, then you're not set up to scale. And so it will cause so many more issues later if you try to scale and you have to go back and fix all of those things at a much larger level. So such a such a wise lesson.
1: <laughs> yeah. Picking a third is tricky because there's so okay. many other little tidbits that I think, wow, what have I learned in this journey? And I think one links to the other. I think I would probably choose that It's great to keep something of your job, something that's very life-giving for you individually, Mm -hmm. and that will help you in the long haul. So for me, I had just taken a bit of time off from my actual teaching two years into Owning Motif, so then I was strictly doing administrative work, and I can do it but it isn't that life giving role for me. And it was also in that stage of overwhelm. So I mean, I didn't have healthy habits. I'll be the first one to admit that answering emails to two in the morning is not a business practice to follow. And that's how we survived.
0: (laughs) So I get it. I get it. I have also been there.
1: (laughs) Yeah, when you have little ones in business, I do love those peaceful night hours. So at the same point, some people can really find their groove and those those hours help me focus. If it's a choice, that's one thing. But if you have to, then you really need to reshape your business model. So that, that aspect of keeping yourself in life giving roles, sometimes we think uh, jobs do this all the time, someone might be thriving as an educator, and you think, you know what, this person would make a perfect principal. But then all of a sudden, they have all this stuff coming their way. And they're thinking, wow, I used to like teaching and now I'm just like putting out fires everywhere. So sometimes we think of things as we're graduating into this next role and it's really easy to accidentally graduate into something that steals your joy. (laughs) So even though I've loved that, it was really important lesson and it's one we've transferred to our teachers as well. So something that we do as a team, that's probably something I've learned over the years is we try to keep teachers in a lane that really serves them. So for instance, we have some teachers that were like wildly creative. They were the ones who you would want your kids to improvise beside or compose beside. And so when we had inquiries, my job, part of my job was to create a great pairing between the student and the teacher. And I'd say, I have just the right teacher for you. And if I couldn't place them with the teacher I thought they would thrive with, I would actually refer them even to another school if I didn't have Mm. that teacher for them because I just started to know our staff so well that I knew what students. And they were funny questions I'd ask on our intake form, like, what's your child's hobby? And that would often tell me like, oh, if they sit there and click Lego together for a long time or if they like math, they're going to be a more sequent student. If on the intake form, it's like, wow, they don't stop moving and they're wildly creative and they like to like paint with their whole body. That's going to tell me that this child's going to need a teacher that is like energetic, enthusiastic, enthusiastic, and can, can change lanes quickly. So again, that, that is part of that thrive mentality that it's not like one teacher only has one type of client, but you can really start to hone those life giving roles and pace the teacher's day with students that really um, settle in well with them. And that's part of the retention. So we have lots of students in our studio that have been with us eight, even 10 years at this point, and quite a number of them. So that speaks to that like connection between the student and the teacher, and also making sure you yourself stay in life giving roles as part of your job, whatever it is.
0: Yes. So important. And I think I, this, I, this always sounds a little bit funny when I admit it out loud to other people, but I've reached a point now in my business where I really think of things like if we're thinking about the things that we can trade, like currency or time, I actually think of like energy as the most valuable thing of what are the tasks that totally deplete me from energy or totally deplete my energy from me. Like answering emails until two of, in the morning. Like I would so much rather be doing other things than that. And I, I get it. And I've been there too of like, there are seasons where you just, you have to do it all, right? You do, you have to do it all. But then I always ask myself like, okay, are there are there ways I could do it faster or more efficient or better to get that energy back? Because it is, it can be difficult to be an entrepreneur, but I don't think it has to be. And if you, you know, have young ones at home or you have to work at night, I think there are still things you can put in play. And it sounds like, you know, you, you learned how to do that. It's easy. And I've been there too, to kind of get in the mentality of like, it just has to get done. I just have to kind of sacrifice my, my stuff to get it done, you know, and, and to be able to check yourself and really ask that question, which so easy to forget to ask. Like I've done it too of like, wait a minute, <laughs> what gives me energy? What what really fills me up? You know, what do I want to be spending my time? Because I think that is the benefit of being an entrepreneur or a business owner is you do get to have some sway, right? You have some choice in it and you can create your own adventure to a certain extent, um, but you have to remember to to remember that. (laughs)
1: right (laughs) remembering to remember is no easy task that's for sure and especially working with a team I found that a challenge right because you're kind of like you're you're balancing out for everyone going oh wow okay yes we can we can help with that but yeah it's really I love what you're saying because it is so essential to just find those little life-giving things and help pad those days to make to make it sustainable because then in years you're like even with motif we're like wow it's been 13 years that's a long time and we did lots of things that we overextended our energy and lots of burnout in the last three years that's a different story from the first 10 but I think that we're we're learning and growing right so I love that yeah so nowadays
0: is your is motif still mostly in person is it online is it a combination what does it look like these days
1: So it's undergone so much transformation, and I never want to say anything is fourth. So COVID was huge for us. We knew we couldn't sustain the building, which we had renovated and poured so much love and care into. Um, So we were like, oh, no, but there is some silver lining there, too. So half of our team stayed home with children and families in that time. And to lose that many at once was really life altering right and for all good reasons so we were like you guys go if you can do that then that's important and 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 the world's changing so we leapt online and that was the best thing we could have done in that time however we so miss our location and we're, we're in this this changing season too and a lot of other teachers are too like okay where are we finding our path The silver lining would be that I was quite burnt out. I had three babies in four years and two months, (laughs) and all of them fairly complex. (laughs) So that was actually probably the best thing that happened to me was that I had to to slow down because there was less admin, there were less teachers to manage. And the other silver lining is I got back to teaching myself, which I remembered, hey, this is very life-giving for me right? So that yeah. was a silver lining.
0: That's amazing. And now, you know, it sounds like you're in a spot where I, similarly, I, my daughter was seven months when the pandemic hit. And so I, yeah. there was a part of a silver lining for me that was like a forced life balance a little bit. Yeah, um, You know, of course, on top of all of the challenge and and everything that was, we were all experiencing, there was that element, which was a little silver lining. And now, I do think it sounds like you're in a place where you found your way back to some joyful things. You know, you're teaching again and you you have a little bit more life and energy flowing in that way. And so that's kind of the the best place to make decisions about the future from. Right. We never want to be making decisions out of like desperation or when we're exhausted and when you're already giving so much. So I can't wait to see what motif looks like in 10 years or in five years or in three years and tell tell the listeners a little bit about because you have a youtube channel that's amazing and you highlight a lot of works by contemporary composers and tell us a little bit about that and what some of the other things that you're doing in your business are
1: yeah that's that's a super fun pivot and and, uh, plot twist if you will. So I started a YouTube channel just accidentally because I couldn't send videos to my students and I thought oh dear we have this this old channel that only has a few student videos on with 18 subscribers. So I didn't set out to like have an action plan (laughs) Not necessarily the best way to start anything, but it was just for fun, um, which is a great way. That's a great reason to start things. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so maybe it's like half of one, half of the other. So it's just kind of grown from me not really having niche, just kind of I teach students that are like all different levels and all different ages. So I wasn't speaking on YouTube to a specific audience until last summer. I decided, you know what, I've been featuring like all these more contemporary composers. And I started finding all these amazing composers, like I have here one from Angeline Bell and these upcoming composers. So I thought, you know what? Maybe I'll send out like five invitations and say, like, would you want to come on YouTube live and talk about your creative process in this feature called Coffee with Composers? Well, in six hours, five of them said yes. And I was like, oh, wow. Now I have to figure out how to go live on YouTube.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yes. In a true entrepreneurial way, you definitely like... May, took action before that I do that all the time
1: <laughs> yeah so there was like my husband calls me a reckless optimist so that was a bit of reckless optimism but it ended up just giving me a year of like beautiful ways of making music of learning about contemporary creatives and their music and hopefully scattering some creativity I just do the channel like usually once the kids are in bed and they're all like really late night owls like me. So it's like little pockets of time, but I'm just so excited to like record a piece or do a live stream when I can. And a little side benefit of that is now 11 years ago, actually 11 years uh, tomorrow, I had a hemorrhagic stroke and I lost the use of my right hand. So there was years that I wasn't quite practicing and playing. And I was feeling a bit discouraged, obviously, because I had just got my Mm -hmm. ARCT a couple years before then and feeling like I was finding my musical stride as a late bloomer. Um, So the channel also gave me a great excuse to enjoy repertoire that wasn't at the top of my skill level. And that also reminded me of that, like insecurity before I would think, oh, well, in order to play for people, I should be playing like Chopin or List or something fancy. And I realized like music is fun. You don't have to play to the max of your skill level for it to be enjoyable. So that was something fun with my channel is it also helped rehab my hand and start to play pieces that I loved and got to feature these amazing creatives. So I'll hopefully continue that series as well.
0: I love that so much. And that's such a good point about just coming back to what's fun and where the joy is and I think with my YouTube channel too, it's definitely been a lesson in like, when you are creating content regularly, you just get really comfortable with being imperfect in front of people, (laughs) right? Which I I think is actually a really great lesson that comes from it. There's always that balance of, I love that you shared that you just asked the composers and then figured out the tech later. That's always me too. I'm like, I have this great idea. I'm gonna put it out into the world. And then I'm like, oh wait, now I have to actually figure out how to make it happen. Um, You know, with like the tech side of it. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, But you're, you know, it's, I think that it's that like just jumping in attitude that can be so good. Like it moves things forward, right? And then balancing that with, obviously you have to learn how to do the things along the way, but you figured it out, you know, you figured it out and you have this beautiful series, Coffee with Composers, that I've gotten, I've been lucky enough to tune into sometimes. And it's so lovely and so wonderful to see you highlighting these composers' works and also just giving a glimpse of like, we don't always see composers especially the composers that we're teaching you know it's one thing to like teach about Beethoven or to teach about the life of Liszt but to actually be able to sit down and like watch a live stream with a composer that you're teaching in your studio I think is really just such a unique idea and a very cool thing that you do so
1: Oh, thank you. Yeah, Yeah, it's been especially fun too. It's really broadened my musical horizons. And again, that's that whole aspect of we're teaching and being taught. And I say that a lot because I really truly believe it. But it's given me just this new appreciation for creatives. And also that as an industry, as piano teachers, again, that ripple effect of supporting other creatives is huge. So that gives us more ways that we can support creatives around us. Absolutely. Well, can you
0: give us a little sense of where people can get in touch with you if they want to watch coffee with composers or if they want to sign up in your studio? What are some ways to get in touch with you?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Well, feel free to hop over onto YouTube at um, the channels called Motif Music Studios. So you can find me there. I usually live stream on Fridays, but I try to keep it flexible because it is my like side enjoyment. And I have young families still, but usually Fridays are a live stream day. And then there's just bursts of inspiration of pieces you might want to teach in your studio that come as as I wish or as I have a student playing the piece. And I do have an email motifmusicstudios at gmail.com and people can hop over there or motifmusicstudios on Instagram is also a good way to say hello.
0: Perfect. And I will include all of those links in the show notes um, so that people can just click on them very easily. Uh, It was so much fun to have you on. Thank you for sharing your story and for being willing to dive deep with me and talk about some of the imposter syndrome and some of those more challenging things. And also for sharing your three lessons learned. I think I know that teachers will find a lot of value in that. And you shared so much wisdom as someone that really has been on this journey for an amount of time and has learned a lot. So thank you so much for being willing to just freely share that with me and with the listeners here.
1: An absolute honor. I can't wait to uh, listen into more of your podcast series as well.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much. All right. Have a great one. And listeners, I will talk to you soon. Thank you so much for listening. I love connecting with open-minded business owners from all over the world. As you know, a studio policy is one of the most important assets of your business and a good studio policy will save you time and energy. For this reason, I created a free PDF with a list of three ways that you can level up your studio policy right now. To grab the free PDF, head on over to ashleyjyoung.com slash level up and the link is in the show notes as well. Talk to you soon.